Last week we saw that God invites sinners to his eternal hope. But sometimes we forget how high God's expectations are, how bad sin really is, and how hopeless we are on our own apart from God. There's a um, songwriter named Andrew Peterson who writes this. He says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The one who utters no untrue word, whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure, who can ascend that hill? There is none righteous, no, not one. We are prodigal daughters and wayward sons. We don't know the half of the hurt we've done, the countless we have killed. Our priests, our cheats, our prophets, our liars, we know what the law requires, but we pile up our sins higher and higher. Who can ascend that hill? I'm a sheep who's gone astray. I've turned aside to my own way. Have mercy on me, son of David. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think this sums up what Isaiah is getting at here in these chapters. This idea that only God can save the wicked, so turn to him. We see, beginning in chapter 56, the end of chapter 56, and into chapter 57, that there is no peace for the wicked. We see this beginning in verses 9 through 12, that wicked leaders behave as hirelings and not shepherds. In verse 9, it says, All you beasts of the field and the forest come to eat. The animals are able to plunder the city because no one is watching. And then chapter 56, verse 10, His watchmen are blind, all of them know nothing, all of them are mute dogs unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the guards who are supposed to be guarding and protecting let anyone wander in. There's no warning, there's no defense, there's no protection. And then, in fact, not only do they not protect, but verse 11, they are greedy, not satisfied, shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain to the last one. Not only are they not protecting and not doing their job, they're actually plundering the very ones that they are supposed to look after. And then finally, they are drunk and worthless and unwilling to change. Verse 12, come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today only more so. And we see a similar kind of picture that Jesus paints in John chapter 10, where he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who's not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And a little bit early in verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And so we have this contrast of the pictures of the wicked leaders of God's people versus God himself. The wicked leaders, primarily emphasized here in the end of chapter 56, let the animals wander in, fail to do their job, even plunder the people, and they say, we're going to do whatever we want, we're going to get drunk, go sleep in the corner, and we don't really care what happens to them. And so wicked leaders behave as hirelings, not shepherds. There is no peace for the wicked for that reason. And then not just the leaders, but the people themselves are devoted to their transgressions. We see this in chapter 57, verses 1 through 14. The righteous die, yet go to God, verses 1 and 2. The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart, 57, verse 1. And devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. So the righteous die, yet go to God, and in contrast, the wicked mock. 
Verse 3, Come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion and offspring of deceit? The righteous die, and the wicked mock their passing, or even ignore it. But God rebukes them because He says they are behaving as those who don't know God at all in their mockery. And furthermore, they devote themselves to idolatry and immorality without growing weary. Verse 5, Who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags. Among the smooth stones of the ravine is their portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed. You went there to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself and have gone up and made your bed wide and made an agreement with yourself of, for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. You are tired out by the length of your road, yet you did not say it is hopeless. You found renewed strength, therefore you did not faint. So the wicked devote themselves to idolatry and immorality without becoming faint. We read words like the ones that I just read, and it makes us be uncomfortable a little bit, I think, that he's speaking that directly. But there's this very clear connection between idolatry and various kinds of immorality. We see it in Romans chapter 1. We see it here. We see it all throughout the words of the prophets. If you start to worship anything or anyone other than God, the natural result is to abandon yourself to all sorts of sinful behaviors. And in their worship of idols, that's exactly what they did. They committed adultery. They committed fornication. They committed homosexuality. There was ritual prostitution. All of these things characterized their false worship of idols. And so when Isaiah lays out what they're doing and basically says, every place where you could go and find pleasure in giving yourself over entirely to idolatry... You have done it. You've traveled long distances. You've bribed people for the opportunity to participate in these kinds of sins. You have abandoned me and gone your own way. So as much as their fault lay with the leaders in terms of them being liars and greedy and selfish and drunkards and all those sorts of things, just as much fault was with the people because they pursued idols with the entirety of who they were. And even when they grew tired of chasing after that sin, they found renewed strength to pursue it even more. Which is interesting because it's the same kind of phrasing that we see at the end of Isaiah 40, describing God's people, that they will mount up with wings as eagles and renew their strength and not be faint. But here, it is a renewing strength and a not being faint in the pursuit of all sorts of wickedness. So, evil leaders behave as hirelings and not shepherds. Wicked people are devoted to their transgressions. And as we continue down to the middle part of chapter 57, we see that these idols will not save them. Verse 11, Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time, so you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them all away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. In the time of God's judgment, 
they were going to cry out to their idols, and their idols were not going to help them. Despite the reckless abandon which, with, with which they pursued all of this idolatry and immorality. And so there's a sense in which God is mocking them and saying, you've mocked my people and you've mocked my ways and you've given yourself, devoted yourself to idolatry and immorality. When the day comes in which judgment falls on you, I too will mock you for your abandonment of my ways. Let them save you if they can, but clearly they can't. Let them help you, but they won't because they're empty and they're worthless. What things do we devote ourselves to that are empty and worthless? You might say, well, I'm not going and worshiping false gods at a pagan temple or in some sort of sacred grove or pouring out some sort of offering on a pile of rocks as though it's an altar. It doesn't mean that the issue of idolatry has disappeared just because we manifest it in different ways. We pursue with greed the things of this life hoping that they will satisfy us. We spend so much of our lives working so that we can buy things so that we can then look at those things and move them around and arrange them in particular ways. And we think that in so doing, we will find joy and happiness and purpose to life. No one, when they're dying, looks around at all the things that they've accumulated and says, this is what's going to help me in this moment. Pictures on the wall, furniture in your living room, decorations, cars, toys of various kinds, that will not help you when you're in the moment when you're about to face God. None of those things are going to matter. And it would be an awful thing if we heard a passage like this and continued chasing after all those sorts of things and come to the end of our lives and look back and say, why did I waste all of my life chasing after this. And in fact, potentially, why did I love all of this more than the God who has given me life itself? You say, well, I wouldn't commit immorality in the way that's described here. There are invitations around us every moment of every day. If we wander out in the world, if we go online, if we look at a catalog, if we, whatever it is, there are invitations around us every moment to break the commandment of God, don't covet. Sometimes that takes the form of lust or immorality. Sometimes it takes the form of wanting position and status that other people have. Whatever it is, that sort of greedy, grasping attitude can manifest itself not just in the love of money and chasing after those things, but also in the desiring of what other people have, whether it be to possess someone's body, whether it be to possess someone's stuff, whether it be to possess someone's position. And so just because we say, well, I don't do the things that verse 5 through 10 talks about, doesn't mean that we don't, I mean, we, we still face the same kinds of temptations, and by God's grace, we have to resist and turn away from those, because again, you come to the end of your life, 
someone like, I don't know, Hugh Hefner, right? Pursued lust and the gratification of it his entire life. When he is dying, is it going to help him? Did it help him to look back on all those memories and say, I had all this pleasure and enjoyment and whatever else outside the boundaries that God established? No. He died a miserable man, as far as I know, with no hope of God. Maybe it's not greed. Maybe it's not lust. Maybe it's pride. And we spend our entire lives geared toward having people notice us and accept us and say nice things to us, make us feel good about ourselves. We portray ourselves in a particular way. We try to hide things we don't want people to see because we want people to approve us. Again, when we come to that final moment, it will not matter one bit whether the people in your life have approved you or not. It matters what God's knowledge of you is. I won't even say God's opinion because God actually knows what we're like. And so to the extent that these or any number of other things are the idols that we worship for which we abandon God, to which we devote ourselves in place of God, that lead us to mock those who are following after God and say, that's foolish, why would you follow God? What can you possibly be getting out of it? It's not worth it. To the extent that that's ever the position in which we find ourselves, we should pay close attention to what it says in verses 15 through 21. Or 14 through 21. God disciplines wicked leaders and people. Verse 14, and it will be said, build up, prepare the way. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. And then he says, I dwell in a high and holy place with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. God both dwells on high, exalted, holy, set apart, perfect, and with those who come before him in humility. The only way that we can approach the inapproachable God in his majesty and holiness is if we humble ourselves. He will not pour out wrath forever against his people, verse 16, because as it says in one of the Psalms, he remembered that they were but dust, and if he put forth the full force of his anger against them, they would be destroyed completely. And yet, verse 17, he strikes his people until they repent. I hid my face and was angry. He went on turning away in the way of his heart, but he's going to restore them, verses 18 and 19. I will heal him, I will lead him, I will restore comfort to him. Peace, peace to him who is far and him who is near. And yet, even in the midst of that, there will be no peace for the wicked, verses 20 and 21. They're like the sea, they toss up garbage and refuse and things that stink and are awful, right? They're unstable, all of those ideas. And God says there is no peace for the wicked. So even though God's people turned away from him and went their own way, 
and were, faced punishment and discipline because of it, there would come a day in which God would deliver them. And yet even in that deliverance, those who persisted in being wicked would find no help or comfort from God. There is no peace for the wicked. Sometimes, often, we try to achieve peace or at least freedom from the awareness of what God expects and our inability to accomplish that on our own. We try to accomplish that by doing things that, that sort of drown out the voice of God's Spirit convicting us. We think that if we scheme and plot and, and organize things in a particular way that we will receive peace. And verse 21 says there is no peace for the wicked. The only way to receive peace, the only way to walk with God is in humility, recognizing that He is holy and we need His grace because apart from that, we are wicked and we go our own way. And so when wicked leaders plunder the people and wicked people devote themselves to gods who are not God, he will discipline even his own people to turn them from their wicked ways. He must do so because as a holy God, he requires so much more and better from them. God demands, secondly, true obedience. Chapter 58. Two ideas are emphasized here. One is fasting. And the other is keeping the Sabbath. And we talked a good bit about that last week. But it comes up again here in verses 1 through 12 and then 13 to 14. God required fasting, but even more, he required justice. So verse 1, it says, Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. They say, we seek you. We delight to know you. We haven't forsaken you. Give us just decisions. Be near to us. Verse 2. And yet, verse 3, we fasted, but you don't seem to see us. We've humbled ourselves and you don't seem to notice. God says why in verse 4. You fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. Why is God ignoring their prayers? Because they're trying to use religious observance as a tool to get what they want so that they can pursue sin more effectively which is what James reproves people about in James chapter 4. He says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They thought, if I fast, God will bless me and I can go on living in oppression and wickedness and no one can touch me. And God said, why would I bless you when you're doing the things that I've asked you to do simply so you can pursue your sin more fervently? Like we were talking about in the Sunday school hour, if we love sin, why would we pray to God and say, God, bless me so that people around me can see the way you're blessing me? Why would God bless us when we bring dishonor to his name and give him a bad reputation before the people around us in the world? Why would he bless us and bring more attention to us when the only reason that we want the blessing is so that we can pursue the sin more? 
And that's what he says to the people of Israel. You can't just do the stuff that I tell you to do and do it with wrong motives and expect that I'm going to honor it. What did God actually want? Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself, for bowing one's head like a reed, for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? So you can bow your head before me like a reed in the wind, right? I'm bowing my head. I'm spreading out sackcloth and ashes as an outward external sign of repentance. God says that means nothing to me if the reason you're doing it is a half-hearted attempt to manipulate me into giving you what you want so that you can keep pursuing sin. What does God want instead? To deliver the weak from oppression and show kindness to the poor and love their neighbors themselves. Verse 6, Loosen the bonds of wickedness. Undo the bands of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. God's people had opportunity to accomplish justice and to not mistreat their fellow Israelites. And there were many times when instead of doing what God expected of them, as far as all that goes, they said, well, we can enslave them and treat them horribly like all the nations around us treat their own people. If I can get an advantage over this person, it doesn't matter to me that that person's a fellow Israelite. I'm going to get everything I can out of him. Maybe he has no money. And so I buy his, um, I buy his, not, uh, maybe I just take his property and they were supposed to return it so that they didn't lose their inheritance. And they said, I don't care what God has said about that. I am making a lot of money or having a lot of profit from this, so I'm going to continue to oppress this person. They weren't supposed to take their fellow Israelites as permanent slaves. And there were times in which they did that and, and refused to release them. And so a verse like verse 6 is saying, you cannot come before me and fast and say, well, I'm not eating food so that I can commit myself to God in prayer. And I'm having these outward signs of repentance so everyone can see how devoted I am to God while at the same time I'm stealing my neighbor's land and his very freedom because then I will have profit. God says the two things are fundamentally incompatible. It's also interesting that in light of verse 6, when Jesus talks about my yoke is easy and my burden is light, there was a time and a place for one person to come under the authority of another, but not in a way that is abusive and oppressive and takes advantage of the other person. So Jesus invited them, come to me and follow after me and learn from me, but here they're saying, you're going to work for me and you'll get nothing and I'll get everything. And that's a relationship of oppression that God was condemning. God also wanted them to show kindness to the poor. It's interesting in Matthew, Jesus says that he's going to reprove people specifically for their lack of doing these sorts of things. That they refused to give a cup of cold water or food to the hungry or things like that. And I think we need to wrestle with this because 
Sometimes we've assumed that because Jesus said, the poor you always have with you, we say it's a, it's a problem that can't be fixed, so let's just not worry about it. And there is clear precedent, at least in the church, very clear precedent in the book of Hebrews. He says, you um, had fellowship and partnership with those who had had their property seized and who were in prison, and you came alongside them and made sure that they were fed and had help even though it was risk to you to associate with them. So there's very clear precedent of that, or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, or any number of other cases in which there are people in connection with the local body of believers who have needs, and those needs should be met by those who are around them. It becomes challenging sometimes to figure out what this looks like beyond the scope of that. But I do think that we should have an attitude of giving instead of holding on to things. He says in verse 7, Divide your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into the house to cover the naked, not to hide yourself from your own flesh to forget your own family. Um, and we see those principles echoed as well in 1 Timothy 5, for example. If you don't take care of your own family... You're worse even than an unbeliever. The passage that I mentioned in Matthew. This idea of, um, I suppose we could call it something like hospitality, but it goes even beyond that. We really struggle with that in our society today, right? Here's my house, my space, my stuff, my food, my everything. I don't want people coming in because they will make a mess or they will break things or it will be expensive or whatever else, right? And so, as a starting point, I think a passage like this is calling us to say, I mean, if we were to put it in today's language, yes, read your Bible. But if you never share of the way that God has blessed you, you can read your Bible every day, all day long, and God's not particularly impressed with that. And so I think we each have to wrestle individually about what this looks like. Um, there's times when we might take someone in, and there's obviously all sorts of challenges connected with that. If you take someone in, and the person refuses to leave, or if you take someone in and there are issues with that person being a threat to your kids because some of the past challenges of that person's life, you've got to weigh all those things. But I think this disposition that says, because there are challenges associated with it, we're never even going to consider it, I think is what a passage like this argues against. God wanted them to deliver the weak from oppression, show kindness to the poor, love their neighbors as themselves. There is a strong political undercurrent to rejoice in oppression. And it takes a variety of forms. And without going too far afield from what the passage is getting at, I think the question we need to constantly be asking ourselves is this. Is the reason I feel a particular way about a particular issue because the Bible says it should be that way? 
or is it because I have a higher allegiance to country or political party than I do to Jesus? Is there something to be said for having borders so that our country is not at excessive risk of attack? Yes. If we take that to the extreme that we rejoice when kids are separated from their families, and I realize these things are misconstrued and used to score political points and all those sorts of things. I'm not denying that people put a spin on everything, but I'm just saying if we rejoice at the concept of it because we smugly say, well, they shouldn't have come this way to begin with or whatever else, that sort of attitude argues against the sort of welcoming attitude that we see here. So let's say you have a neighbor who came into the country by some sort of illegal route. Should your first and primary concern be that justice is served in some sort of get them out of here as fast as possible sort of way, or should your goal be to say, whether or not they came here the right way, I have an opportunity to reach out to this person and point that person to Jesus and minister to their needs? As just one example. Is there a great degree of oppression associated with um, I guess we could call it the abortion industry? Yes. I think it's easy to get so caught up in the fact that it's wrong that we forget the variety of situations in which people find themselves. And it's easy for us to say, well, the Supreme Court decision is such, or this law is being passed to accomplish this, and we cheer and we're excited we need to recognize that these are people that we are talking about. Here's a mom who's been lied to by the people that push a culture of death. Here's a mom that's been lied to by the guy who said, oh, I'll be with you forever, and then as soon as she gets pregnant, he walks away. Potentially lied to by her parents, potentially lied to by any number of sources. If we ever get to the point that we make it only about don't kill your baby, which is clearly a bad thing to do, and there's a reference to it even earlier in this passage, and we forget that people are in difficult situations and we need to show them compassion and kindness and Jesus' love and help, then we're not honoring the spirit of a passage like this. What about issues like the whole Black Lives Matter movement or kind of tied in with that, the way that people are treated or, or placed in prison for various things? Black Lives Matter as an organization is opposed to Christian principles. But the concept that people have been mistreated and shown prejudice for really shallow and foolish reasons that's true we need to be able to disentangle 
a particular organization that is teaching things contrary to the Bible with the concept that there are terrible things that have happened to people in our country that need to be dealt with. And that extends even to things like prison. I mean, you look at city ordinances, like for my city, there is a possibility of jail time and fines for all sorts of things. Pretty much any ordinance that's on the books, if you don't follow it, you could theoretically go to jail for 30 days. And it could be something really dumb, like you didn't cut your grass. So if we conceive of the possibility that there are people in jail or in prison today for really trivial reasons, who need encouragement and hope and help, instead of just saying, well, they did something bad, they should be locked away. Again, this attitude of helping those in need, upholding justice, rejecting oppression, all of those sorts of things are, are issues that we need to wrestle with. If God's people in this passage did what he called them to do, God would bring light and glory into their lives as he heard and delivered them. Your light would break out like the dawn. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You'll call and God will answer. You'll cry and he'll say, here I am. Verse 11, he will guide you and give you strength and restore you and you'll rebuild your foundations. So they start out and they say, God, we're doing all these things, but you're letting these things happen to us. Why? And God says, because you are doing it with wrong motives so that you can chase after sin. And God says, if instead you do it with right motives and get at the main point of it, which is not fast to be noticed, not fast to seem religious, but fast out of a heart that genuinely desires to see oppression overturn and to show love to our neighbors, I will bless you. Now, these promises are directed toward the people of Israel, but I think there is application to us even today. In the last two verses of chapter 58, God required keeping of the Sabbath, but even more, he required love. He said, if you stop loving yourself, if you turn from doing your own pleasure and honor the Sabbath, true Sabbath is to seek God by doing what he requires, to honor God as he deserves. Then, verse 14, they would delight in God and find his blessing as he had promised. You'll take delight in the Lord. I'll make you right on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. You can come to poor God, supposedly to worship him every Sunday or during the week or whatever else. But if the point of it is not because you love God and have a relationship with him, it's just an empty ritual. God doesn't want you to sing praise out of a heart that doesn't care about him. God doesn't want you to give an offering out of, a, out of a sense of mere obligation, not because you love and want to follow after God. God doesn't want you to hear his word and say, oh, that was nice, and leave unchanged by it. God wants you to encounter him as you come before him in worship because there is a love and a relationship with him that changes your life. And so in chapter 58, we see that God's people had forsaken him, yet God still demanded true obedience. And since they could not save themselves, God 
made himself low and delivered them. And so thirdly, because the wicked can't offer true obedience, God accomplishes salvation. We see in verses 1 through 8 that God possesses salvation, yet wicked people love and run after their sin. God has salvation and God sees and hears. The, Lord hand, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. What's the problem then? If the problem is not God's inability to fix it, what's the problem? Verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God's presence and blocks answers to our prayers. Sin is pervasive in verses 3 through 8. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues or goes to court righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Murder, lies, injustice, plotting against neighbor, devotion to wickedness, and lack of peace... Sin is pervasive. That is the problem. Why do we desperately need God? Why is there this issue between us and God? Because sin has made a separation between us and God. God is powerful and able to save, but sin on our own is something that we can't deal with. We see these same sorts of ideas in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, where Paul emphasizes the fact that there is none righteous, no, not one. We all go our own way. So what's the proper response? Verses 9 through 15. Wicked people confess your sin. The way is dark and hopeless. Verse 9 through 11. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. The way is dark and hopeless because of sin. And the reason is this willing sin that we pursue. Our transgressions are multiplied before us and our sins testify against us because our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth is stumbled in the street and uprighteousness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Isaiah paints this picture of hopelessness. God possesses salvation, yet the wicked people love and run after their sin. There has to be an acknowledgement that sin is the problem. And there has to be a turning to the fact, verses 15 through 21, that God is the one who sees and God is the one who steps in and God is the one who saves. God requires justice, but there is none. Verse 15, the second half of it, the Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. God says there should be justice, but there is none. God sees that people need salvation. Verse 16, he saw there was no man. 
and astonished, was astonished there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. God saw people need to be saved, but no one can save themselves. There's no justice, there needs to be justice. There's no salvation, there needs to be salvation, so I will accomplish it. God in power steps in to deliver. He puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. He begins by punishing his enemies, verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. Why? So that they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun in the east, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. God says there is none to deliver, none to save, none to help, so I will step in so that all will see that I am the true God and there is no other. He will save sinners. Verse 20, A Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. There has to be this element of repentance. It's not enough just to say there's a problem. There has to be a desire to turn from that problem and to turn to God. Because if we say there's a problem and I'm happy for it to stay that way, we don't really hate sin and love God. But if we say I'm going to turn away from that sin and it makes me miserable and it offends God and it's awful and terrible and I'm going to turn from it, then we turn to God and God is the Redeemer for those who turn to Him in that sort of humility. And then God says, I will not depart from my people again. Verse 21. And that sort of goes into chapter 60, but we'll read it this week as well. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. God anticipates a day in which his people will be turned from their sin and turned to him. He will renew his covenant with them and they will not depart from following after him. Now, has that happened up to this point? No. But there is a day coming when it will. And so we see in this passage that there's no peace for the wicked, that God demands true obedience, but because we are wicked and we can't fulfill the true obedience which God expects, God himself steps in to provide salvation. We need to let the weight and reality of sin sink in on us. Apart from God, you and I are completely and utterly wicked going our own way see that in Romans 3, in the passage here, in the Psalms. You and I cannot be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And that's what God expects. Not just 80%, 90%, 99%. Be as perfect as God in heaven is perfect, and no one can reach that. All fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, was made perfect in our place. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin in our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. If you turn to Him, you find deliverance and God will powerfully save you. And then He will use you to bear that salvation to others. So if you have turned and are continuing to turn away from your sin and to God... What should our response be to this passage? Look back and see how far you have come from where you were in the hopelessness and 
horror of sin to the freedom that comes in Jesus. Never forget how bad this was. So you know what happens when we look back? We start to make excuses and we start to think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It wasn't that bad. Think of the picture in the middle of chapter 57 where he says you just run with abandon toward your sin. You chase after it. Even when you don't want to do it, even when it doesn't satisfy, you just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Remember that. Remember what God has saved you from. Remember God's grace and continue to press on. If you've never yet turned and you find yourself in this strange mixture of wanting to sin yet being trapped by it, of of wanting not to do it yet being enslaved by it, turn away from that sin and turn to God because He will save those who come before Him humbly and repentantly. Only God can save the wicked So turn to him. Jesus came, as we'll remember here in just a moment, to save sinners. Not people who were doing great and just needed a little push to get over the last little part of the race. Not people who were really, really close but just needed a little bit of touch-up and they'd be good. People who hated God were mired in the misery of sin and had no help of getting away from it. That's who Jesus came to save. He said, I came to call righteous not sin- or sinners not righteous to repentance. And so when we remember what He has done here in just a few moments, let that sink in what He has saved you from. And don't go back to it. Keep following after Him. Because He's the only one that could have saved you then and He's the only one who can sustain you now. Only God can save the wicked, so turn to Him. Let's pray. Lord, none of us can ascend to your holy hill in our own strength because we are corrupt and wicked. We need the cleansing that Jesus provides for us to be able even to come before you in prayer in this way. We tend not to think about how bad sin really is and how great the deliverance is that you accomplish. Help us to consider these truths, that they would sink in, that we would hate sin and love you, that we would run from sin and run to you, that we would turn from sin and turn to you from the moment that we first start trusting in Jesus and every moment after. We need your help to accomplish this, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.